The following resource is from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Father, thank you for this evening and the time to be together and study. And I thank you for each of these brothers and sisters that are here and uh, just the work you've done in their lives. Um, Lord, the study that they've done in the Word of God and the ways that they've lived it out. And now we all come together tonight to share together and to learn and grow. And I pray that you would just shed light on this beautiful and important chapter, Romans chapter 7. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, we are walking through some of the key chapters in the book of Romans, and specifically Romans 6, 7, and 8. Those three chapters are the Bible's guidebook to sanctification. All right, to sanctification. How would you define that? What is sanctification? Becoming more holy. Becoming more holy. Very good. All right, that's a great answer. Just progressive growth toward holiness or Christ-likeness. So Romans 6, 7, and 8, um, key uh, chapters on that. Now Romans 7 is pretty famous, but not the first part that we're going to study tonight. I don't know how far we'll get tonight, but mostly the second half where Paul describes a bitter struggle that he has with sin. But I would say that Romans 6 is more significant and more important in sanctification than Romans 7. Uh, Romans 6 basically gives you the key theological principles of our new relationship with sin and uh, with righteousness and everything you need for sanctification. Uh, Your basic conceptions of sanctification are going to be in Romans 6. What Romans 7 is going to do, it's going to initially talk about our relationship with the law. what What does it mean that we're not under the law or dead to the law? Uh, It's going to vindicate the law, and then it's going to give the description of how difficult sanctification is. And that's, I think that's useful and helpful uh, for us, and we'll walk through that. Uh, And then Romans 8, um, uh, it ends up with just resounding assurance and encouragement that because of the ministry of the indwelling spirit, we are going to win. We are going to end up conformed to Christ, perfectly conformed to Christ. And so that's pretty exciting. So tonight, Romans 7. But let's get a little bit of context here. Uh, Romans 6, we learned that we are united with Christ and therefore dead to sin and alive to God. That's going to be vital for our study tonight in Romans 7, 1 through 6. Can someone read Romans 6, 1 through 4 out of, off your hand out there? What shall we say then? Shall we go in sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Mm. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? <coughs> we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. All right, so this is going to be vital. Foundational to our conception of sanctification is the idea of spiritual union with Christ. The moment you come to faith in Christ, you are united with him. You become one with him through faith. And so therefore, you died with Christ and you were raised with Christ. So therefore, sanctification has essentially a negative and a positive aspect. There are negative uh, things, things that we must not do. There are things we must kill. We must put sin to death by the Spirit, uh, as Romans 8 will say. There are things we must not do or think or, or feel or whatever. Then there's the positive side, which are uh, good works we should do. There are a fruit of the Spirit, different aspects, etc. That's going to be vital. Now we walk through that in Romans 6, 5 through 14, understanding and living out our union with Christ. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are to not present uh, the members of our body to sin, sin as instruments of wickedness, but we are to present ourselves to God and to present the members of our body to him as instruments of righteousness, all right? Then he goes on from that into Romans 6, 15 through 19 that says fundamentally our obedience proves who our master is. He uses an analogy of slavery. Uh, You show who your master is by who you obey. 
So he uses that analogy. He says, I'm speaking, putting this in human terms so that you can understand. He's using an analogy. Uh, the analogy is of slavery, and, and who you obey shows who your true master is. Then at the end, he ends up, and we talked about this last time, so we ended in Romans 6. Uh, Romans 6, 20 through 23. Can someone read that? That's the end of Romans 6, and it's going to feed right into Romans 7. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What fruit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, the fruit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. Hmm. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, so the argument he makes here at the end is that um, there is infinite superiority to the fruit you have in sanctification compared to the fruit that you had when you were not a Christian. He said, look at the fruit, look at the fruit of your life. And that's going to be vital for understanding this first part of Romans 7. So now, <clears throat> I would love it if somebody could read Romans 7, 1 through 6. I don't think I put the, uh, the text there for you. I should have. Well, yeah, I did. There it is. So Romans uh, 7, 1 through 6. So you have to jump ahead in the handout, but I don't want to skip those things. But you can just read it off the off your pages of the Bible. You can skip ahead if you want, but we're going to go back. Someone read Romans 7, 1 through 6. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive, but if the husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, <coughs> him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Hmm. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies, so that we bore fruit for death. Hmm. But now, by dying to what once found us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the Okay, so thank you. Um, now we're going to walk through uh, all of Romans 7 eventually. I don't know how far we're going to get tonight, but I want you to get a sense of what Paul says. So the topic of this chapter, Romans 7, is a Christian's relationship to the law. That's what really the whole chapter is about. That's what we're going to walk through. And he's, uh, he's going to teach, and we're going to learn this, it is as impossible to be sanctified by the law as it was to be justified by the law. They're equally impossible. The law cannot justify you and neither can the law sanctify you. Now we learn from Romans 3.20 that the law could not justify you or work your forgiveness, uh, forgiveness of sins or a right relationship with you uh, between you and God as a sinner. Romans 3.20 says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But I think Paul would agree to this statement as well, though he doesn't overtly state it like he does in Romans 3.20. Basically, Romans 7 says, by works of the law, no human being will be sanctified in his sight either. So just like you can't be initially made right with God and forgiven uh, of your sins by the law, so you cannot make progressive progress in Christlikeness through the law. He's actually going to go beyond that and argue that the law is a hindrance to sanctification. It actually gets in your way. It makes it difficult for you. If you understand the law the way, let's say, the Pharisees did or the way that they sought to prove their own righteousness by it, all they're doing is storing up wrath every day. Like you think about the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? And the Pharisee went up and prayed about himself. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of everything I have, blah, 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 right? He lived day after day after day like that. Was he actually storing up good works in heaven and storing up, or what was actually going on with that kind of life? He's actually storing up wrath every day. So his understanding of the law was an actual hindrance to him. And so also we find that um, for a Christian. If a Christian were to conceive of the progress they now need to make in the Christian life being by the law, that's a hindrance to you. It's the very thing Paul will argue in Galatians 3. Can someone read that off your handout? Galatians, Galatians 3, 1 through 3. 
O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, so what's the problem with the Galatians that he's being very sharp here? He's calling them foolish here. He's saying they're bewitched. Why? What's the problem according to just these these verses here, Galatians 3, 1 through 3. Having begun by the Spirit, they are trying to be what? Perfected by the flesh. Well, what does that mean, to be perfected? To do what in their own power? Live a good life, or we could say be sanctified. Make progress in the Christian life. And Paul says the way you begin is the way you make progress. That's what he's arguing. Do you see that in Galatians 3? The way you begin is the same way you're going to make progress and no other way. You can't begin by the Spirit, but make progress by the flesh. And the flesh clearly means by works of the law. In other words, by a fleshly attempt to keep the law, you cannot make progress. You're actually going to be in a worse situation. So the law in that sense, that, that understanding of the law is a hindrance to sanctification. So... Many weak Christians constantly doubt their salvation because of failures to keep God's law. They constantly ask, am I really a Christian, based on their daily performance. So one day, in one day, out the next, back the third, they're in and out. So therefore, we have to understand the relationship between the Christian and the law. There are two opposite errors that Christians can fall into concerning their relationship to the law. One is, I'm not worthy because of my failure to keep the law. So I'm probably not a Christian because I'm doing so poorly. The other is, I don't need to be concerned about the law at all. That's antinomianism. So those are opposite errors. Ironically, both lead to a life of sin. Both of them do. One of them, the person despairs and gives up. And that leads to sin, clearly. The other one, um, you know, is uh, just a life of, of uh, lawlessness, basically. They're not concerned about how they live. You get a sense that there was a problem with that in Corinth where Paul has to tell them to not go to the uh, temple prostitutes in 1 Corinthians 6. Wes and I just did a podcast on that. Imagine having to be told to not go to the temple prostitutes. But behind that was, I think, a mentality that what you did with your body didn't matter. All that mattered was the spirit. And so that's really kind of a lawless life. So they were having problems with that. And Paul has to instruct them in morality, purity, holiness. Uh, etc. So those are opposite errors. So we need, fundamentally, we need to understand what is our relationship to the law. And that's what this chapter is about, so that we can understand it. The key to everything here is union with Christ. Union with Christ. Um, so I'll give you a three-part outline now of the chapter. Romans 7, 1 through 6 is a general statement defining the Christian's relationship to the law. The key verse in this section is going to be verse 4. Someone read verse 4. Romans 7, 4. It's right on your hand out there. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Okay, so according to that, what is our relationship to the law? According to Romans 7, 4. We died to it. So we're dead to the law, all right? And so we need to understand that. What does that mean? What doesn't it mean? How do we understand that? But this is the key assertion that Paul's making concerning the Christian's relationship to the law. We died to the law. Now, in Romans 7, 7 through 12, to continue my outline of the chapter, Paul takes the time to vindicate the law. To vindicate the law. What do I mean by that? To vindicate the law. To show that it had a good purpose. It had a good purpose. But more than that, all right, would you say the law was poorly written? Could it have been done better? Would you say, would you argue that? I would hope not. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> there is no problem with the law in how it was written. It doesn't suffer from basic flaws. If the Lord had just done a better job, it would have done it. It's not that. The law, he calls it holy and righteous and good. That's a lot of adjectives there to tell you what he thinks about the law. It's perfect, all right? The law of the Lord is perfect, right? Psalm 19, Psalm 119. There's nothing wrong with the law. Well, then what's the problem? There's something wrong with us. We are the problem. 
And that's, so he's vindicating the law. There's nothing wrong. It's not like God could have written a better law, etc. That's not the issue. Then in, in the more famous section of this chapter, uh, Romans 7, 13 through 25, Paul gives himself his own, his own experience as proof and, uh, and uh, an example of the thing he's been saying here, which is fundamentally, by the works of the law, we cannot be sanctified. That it, it will not work to do that. I am a prime example, he would say. All, right? All the law ever did for me was stimulate evil. It did not sanctify me. And even now, there's a battle within myself, a, a bitter battle that I have with sin. And the, my efforts to keep the law will not solve that. That will not be the way. It is only by the power of the Spirit, and he'll get to that in chapter 8, that we can um, bear fruit for God. All right, so now let's zero in on Romans 7, 1 through 6. Dead to the law, uh, fruitful for God. I'll read it again. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So now Paul's giving us a different analogy or metaphor here. What, what, is, what is the analogy or metaphor he used in chapter 6, which we just talked about a moment ago? What's the metaphor or picture he used in Romans 6? Huh? Slavery. Slavery. But now he's shifting to marriage. Well, why does he do that? Well, one of the reasons is that there, as with all illustrations, there's a limit to it. There's a limit to all parables. There's a limit to all similes and metaphors. It's not, they're not perfect. So the problem with the slavery metaphor is that actually it is possible for a slave to be sold to a new master. You can change masters. So he, he changes the metaphor now to marriage where he's saying this woman can't change her husband without becoming an adulteress, except for one thing. And what is the one condition that will allow her to change spouses? Death. If her husband dies, she's set free. So he's moving now because the old analogy of slavery, that didn't work because slaves could be sold uh, to a new master. So now he's talking about something that's permanent it's a binding covenantal agreement that is over you as long as you live. And the only way to get out of it is by death. That's why he shifts to this different uh, metaphor. So he uses this analogy or metaphor of marriage. And that's Paul's basic point. A covenant is binding, this kind of covenant is binding only as long as we live. All right? So he's zeroing in on that. Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. So he's zeroing in on the issue of authority, the authority of the law. Okay? Yeah, go ahead, please. I listen to you, you're the teacher on this, but I heard another teacher saying, well, the law was not given to Christians. It was given to Jews. And of course, this is a Jew talking to us, even though he became a Christian. What do you say about that? Well, um, it's interesting. First of all, we have, we have different questions about the word brothers in verse 1. Is Paul talking to other Jews here? Or is he talking to Christians? And then the word law, are we talking about the Ten Commandments? Are we talking about, I mean, what is the law and all that? So there's different debates about it. It could be just that, uh, it says in Romans 2, that, that God writes a law on people's hearts Right? Um, so the, the Gentiles have an inner moral law. So there's a lot of debates or discussions about that. So I would say that when you look at Jesus' summary of the two great commandments, which summarizes all the law, all of it. So that's him saying that's what the law is. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Would you think that that's an expectation God has for the entire human race or just for the Jews? I think so. 
I, I think so. Now, the Jews had more details. They had more explicate, like Ten Commandments. That's not two commandments, ten commandments. But it, it's expanded. But the first four commandments are vertical toward God, and the last six are horizontal toward others. And then you go through, and I just am going to trust Jesus to say, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, to love God and to love neighbor. So it's a good question. Any other questions at this point? All right, so the law... Uh, for the Jews, I would say the Old Covenant, clearly an expl explication of that law, was binding. We're talking about the authority of the law. It has an authority over the Jews, let's say, every day of their lives. From birth till death, every day it stood over them. It's an authoritative relationship. So the law has authority, but only as long as you live. All right? So it's similar to marriage in that regard, till death do you part. So why would we say that the law has authority only as long as you live? So we're about to be buried in, with him, right? Okay, right. All right, well, let's just think in terms of our, our system of jurisprudence. Let's say that weren't true. No, 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 the law extends beyond death. Oh, really? How are you going to do that? I mean, why wasn't Lee Harvey Oswald prosecuted? Why was there no court trial? He was assassinated by Jack Ruby. Well, what then happened to the case that the government was going to make against him for assassinating JFK? They had to work on it. They didn't have to do any of it. Why? Because he's dead. So, you know, it, it, it would never be. Now, I want to tell you there is an exception. The medieval Catholic Church dug up the bones of, of John Wycliffe something like 70 years after his death and burned them. <laughs> That's a different matter. But they were very angry that he had slipped through their fingers and died of natural causes, and it frustrated them. But that's a different story for another day. Uh, at any rate, we know that, that the law can't go beyond, beyond the grave. Jesus himself said, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more to you. But I'll tell you who to fear. Fear the one who has the power to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's something only God can do. So our jurisdiction, the law's jurisdiction, only goes till death. So that's what he's talking about. Only as long as a man lives. All right, then he goes to this issue of marriage. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband's still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So this is a different analogy. She is under legal obligation to stay married to him until death parts them. She doesn't have the freedom to walk away. She doesn't have the freedom to just say, I'm not going to do that anymore. What point is Paul making here by this analogy? What is he saying about the Christian? Do we have the freedom to just not worry about the law? Do we have the freedom to just walk away from it? Did the Jews have the freedom to say, I'm just not doing that anymore? None of the above. Something significant had to change to set them free from the obligations of the law. Now, the fundamental concept of the law is that if you violate it, it accuses you, prosecutes you, and then condemns you to death, right? The wage of sin is death. So once the law has caught you in a transgression, condemned you, and then carried out its sentence against you, the law is done with you. There's nothing more the law can do to you. All of us are transgressors. We've all violated the law, but that's the point he's making. You can't just midstream say, I'm just not doing that anymore, I'm walking away. So the woman in this analogy, if she tries to do this, say, I'm not going to be married to this person anymore, she doesn't have the right to do that. That's the point he's making. You can't just stop being concerned about the law. Something decisive has to happen. And the only thing that will satisfy the law's demands is the death of the perpetrator the death of that wrongdoer or malefactor, when that death has been achieved, and only then will the law be satisfied. That's the point. All right. So he's saying you don't have the law is authoritative, um, and the only way to get out is by death. All right. Paul then says, by our spiritual union with Christ, we died to the law. That death has occurred. Verse 4 is the key, all right? So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, 
in order that we may bear fruit to God. So what is he saying there in verse 4? This is the key verse in this section. What is he asserting is true of every Christian? We're dead in Christ. Okay. We, we died with Christ, but here he's specifically saying died to the law. What does that mean? What's the significance of the fact that we died to the law? Law has been satisfied. It has no authority over us in that sense. It has no jurisdiction. It's done its job. And so we died with Christ on the cross. So you, should, you, you picture that, and then Galatians 2.20 openly asserts it. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. So that's the idea of the union with Christ. At that moment, then, the law is done with us. It has accused us, condemned us, and killed us. And now we're free. So going back to the marriage analogy, you're free to do what? According to this analogy, what are you free to do? To remarry. As a widow, free to remarry. Now, you have to understand, it's not that it's imperfect, but it's complex here. In this case, all right, for the woman to be free to remarry, who has to die, her or her husband? Right. If she dies, she's not marrying anybody. So I was like, all right, Paul, you're confusing me, all right? Well, it's a complex situation, but we're starting with one analogy and we're shifting, all right, to the next. So in this case, if we were consistent and carried it through, we were married to the law and one of us has to die so I can be married to another. So in that analogy, what would have to die? The law. Well, the law isn't dying. <laughs> the law is forever until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest letter or least stroke of a pen is going to pass away. So law is not going anywhere. So we are put in the role of the woman who wants to get remarried and the spouse has to die, but then suddenly the shift happens that we die, but in order for us to then be able to marry, we have to be alive. And guess what? We are. We are alive with Christ, and so now we can, we're free to marry. That's how it works. I didn't write it. I didn't make it up. I'm just trying to explain it, <laughs> okay? It's like, well, I didn't even know this was so problematic. That's what I do. I, I take passages you thought were easy and make them complex. So there it is. It's a complex image, but he has to do that shift, all right? He has to do that shift because we need to be severed from the old marriage relationship and brought into a new marriage relationship but we are the ones who die. But in real life, if we died, we're not marrying anybody. So our life is over. So that's how he does it. Does that make sense? So fundamentally, in verse 4, we died for all time to the law in that sense. And now we're free. And now we get to the second and more important part of the analogy. That's why Paul changed from the slavery analogy to the marriage. What's the point? Fruit. The point is the fruit. It's the very thing he was saying at the end of chapter 6. you remember? Compare the fruit. What was the fruit of your old situation? Fruit for death. You were bearing fruit for death. What is the fruit of the new relationship? The good fruit that comes in the kingdom. Fruit by the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, you could say. Whatever. The good fruit that he has in mind. So look at verse, uh, verse 4 through 6. So also, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Do you see that? For when we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code. So the issue here, part two of the marriage analogy, is now the fruit that comes. So you know, marriage is a picture of fruitfulness from the very beginning when God brought man and woman together. God created them in the image of God, and God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. All right, what did God mean by that? Children. Have children, lots of children, fill the earth. So now we have been become married to Christ, and that's a very common picture in a lot of places in Scripture. It's not some weird thing. You have it in Ephesians 5. You definitely have this picture of God marrying Israel in the Old Testament, etc. So now we have this idea of us being in some sense married to Christ. What is the fruit that comes from this new marriage, this union? How would you describe that fruit? 
Okay, righteousness. Okay, good. Anyone else? We've talked about it some sometime. Say again. Other new Christians like sharing the gospel. Okay, sharing the gospel. I think we, we touched on this last time because Paul compares the fruit at the end of Romans 6. says, what fruit did you have then? What fruit do you have now? So I broke it into two categories. Remember, attitude fruit and action fruit. So fruit is just good effects of being united with Christ, the good effects. So what would be attitude fruit? Examples of attitude. Say again. Fruit of the Spirit. Love to be more loving. Is that fruit? Definitely it is. Joy. All right. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And that's not an exhaustive list. There are other beautiful attributes that aren't listed there. Like I would argue that Christian contentment is a very beautiful attitude fruit. To have a, an attitude of, of contentment in any and every situation is something only the Spirit can work in us. Paul and Silas singing in the Philippian jail after having been publicly beaten, thrown in the inner inner. Uh, jail with their feet in the stocks and they're there at midnight singing praise to God. That's fruit. That's a beautiful fruit. But as Stephanie mentioned, leading other people to Christ. Right? Jesus said, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're white for harvest. So bringing souls to faith in Christ. That's fruit from, from our lives. So I said there's uh, attitude fruit and then there's action fruit. What would be an example of action fruit? This might be in Matthew too, this is talking about, about the law itself. He said, don't think I came to abolish it, as you brought up. Mm-hmm. Um, but you came to fulfill it, and have an inner from spirit to disappear. It'll always be there. So, and he says, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Know, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great. Okay. For I tell you that unless your righteousness passes out of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So I always kind of think of the old, old covenant was external, and now the new covenant is internal. God now has access to the heart, and he has the Holy Spirit, so that we can then show outward. We couldn't do that before. Amen. And now we have we can have that righteousness, but only because he's in there to reflect it out, that marriage relationship. That's great. I would say any action fruit is anything God commanded you to do, and you do it. Right? Anything um, in any category. Could be evangelism, could be financial, giving to the poor and needy, could be in marriage, could be in parenting, could be church involvement, church life, could be prayer, could be whatever. Anything God told you to do, and then you do it, that's fruit. So those are two great helpful categories attitude fruit, action fruit, that's the fruit. And that's what Paul said. Now, in the old way of the law, what does he say about that fruit? Verse 5. Somebody read verse 5. It was death fruit. When we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. What does he mean by that? Sinful passions aroused by the law. As soon as you tell me I can't do something, I want to do it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I wouldn't have even thought to do that until you said don't do it. Just come. Now he's going to give a case study in verses 7 through 12, and I don't want to jump ahead now, but there was uh, the law of coveting, right? And he said, uh, you know, I, I learned when I was a boy, I learned you shall not covet. I didn't know what the word meant, so I asked my rabbi, right? And he told me what coveting was. I asked more questions. He told me more, more explanations. I asked for examples. He gave me examples. Then I went home that night, and you know what I did? I coveted. <laughs> so that's a case study of how the law aroused sinful passions in him, right? So it could be... Then he won't study. That's right. Or you, you uh, that have young kids at home, do this uh, little social experiment. Wrap up a box with a lid that can be lifted off. Wrap it up pretty and just say, do not touch. And just put it at the center of the t- and just see how long it takes. 
guess which of your kids is going to be the one to crumble? I mean, what's going to happen? How long it'll last? Yeah, when you're told you can't do something, we tend to we tend to want to do it. It's a lot longer if you told them to lift the lid off. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they were like, I'm not doing it. Exactly, exactly. So there's all kinds of things. Um, and here's the thing. Um, let's, let's talk about the root sin. One of the greatest sins of the flesh is pride. How did the law produce pride in the Pharisees? The commands of the law produce pride in they them. They were proud because they could do it. They said they could do it. They kept it. It wasn't just the Pharisees. Remember the rich young ruler? He said, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? He said, why do you ask me about what is good? No one is good, but God alone. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man asked. Remember that? Shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, those last two are interesting. Honor your father and mother. Okay. Love your neighbor as yourself. What did the rich young ruler say? All these I have kept from youth. What do I still lack? It's interesting Jesus didn't say, no, you haven't. <laughs> he could have done it. But you're talking about honor your father and mother. I did that. Let's bring mom and dad in and let's ask some questions. And love your neighbor as yourself. What human being could ever understand that command and say they did it? Other than Jesus, of course. But then Jesus says, go sell everything, etc. But here's the thing. The, the commands aroused in the Pharisees a wicked pride. All right? Um, I'm, I'm going to mess on. Mess. Somebody look ahead to Romans 10. Look in your Bible to Romans 10. I think it's Romans 10 and verse 3. I think that's the verse. I'm going to be embarrassed if it's not. But Romans 10, 3. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Yeah, that's the verse. He's talking about the law-abiding Jews. They didn't know the righteousness that comes from God, and they sought to do what? Establish their own. So they didn't submit to God's righteousness. In other words, they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't think they needed Jesus. You get the sense that from Jesus, like the scribes and Pharisees that came to talk to Jesus, did they, have a, did they feel like they needed Jesus to help them spiritually? Not at all. As a matter of fact, they're incensed by him. And Jesus said it, the reason the world hates me is I testify that what it does is wrong, evil. That's what they hated about Jesus. They hated hearing, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. They want to hear that. So they're angry at him. But Romans 10.3 says, by the law, they sought to establish what? Their own righteousness. What do you think God thought about that? Made him angry. So then if you go back to Romans 7.5, it says, when we were controlled by the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. So that in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, you're seeing it's all manner of perversity and wickedness. The idolatry that they did, that, that was stri strictly forbidden from them to do, was, it was perverse, it was deeply wicked. And they learned, perhaps this is implying, they learned some of it from the law itself. Do not do this, do not do that, do not offer your children in the fire to Molech, you know, these kinds of things. They're like, oh, you know, and, and what they're saying is they didn't follow it, they just learned how to sin from it. Not just Paul with coveting, but things in general. That's what 7.5 is saying. There's no way the law could have, could have saved them. That's when we were controlled by the flesh. But now, okay, it's a key phrase, now that we're Christians, right? Now, by dying to what once bound us, namely the law, we've been set free from that, set free from the law, so that we serve, and that's going back to the old analogy of slavery, we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the code. So it's going to go exactly to Romans 8, 3, and 4. Someone read that for us, Romans 8, 3, and 4. It's actually in your handout here. <laughs> Romans 8, 3, and 4. It's right on your handout, I think. For what the law has were powerless to do in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, 
God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in us and sinful man in order that the righteousness requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the Spirit. Okay, so that's very hopeful. Very hopeful. Romans 8, 4 says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's what he's saying, basically. So we now are able to fulfill the law by the Spirit, fully met in us. That's what he's, that's what he's getting at. So, but earlier in Romans 8, 3, it says the law, the law was powerless. What the law was powerless to do. Not that there was anything wrong with the law. It couldn't have been written better. It couldn't have been that there were more commands. If only there had been more commands or less commands or any of that. There was nothing wrong with the law. It just was fundamentally weakened by our flesh. All right? God did that by sending his own son. By the way, God knew very well that that's what would happen with the law. He knew very well that our unregenerate flesh could not keep it. And he was doing it to set up Jesus as the only Savior, the only way, uh, etc. Uh, also, Hebrews 7, 18 and 19 um, teaches the same thing. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. Wow. The author of Hebrews says some bold things about the law. It's really strong here. Weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. So the author of Hebrews is saying there, the law didn't make anything perfect, just exposed the wicked imperfections that were already there. It didn't make us fit for heaven. Couldn't do it. So the law could only basically stand outside of you and command you to do certain things and not do other things, but it was weak and powerless to make it happen. So an analogy, picture a man drowning in a lake. The law stands on the shore and shouts instructions to him, telling him how to swim. Okay? Christ dives in and rescues him and then works inside his mind and body, making him an excellent swimmer afterwards. All right? Actually, to some degree, the law commands the man to swim and then con condemns him to death if he fails. That's basically what's going on with the law. It was standing against you. It was opposed to you. All right? Any questions on Romans 7, 1 through 6, the marriage analogy, all of that? We are now married to Christ to another to bear fruit. And the fruit we bear is good works for God. Yes, go ahead. Um, verse 6, what, what does he mean by the new way of the Spirit? Yeah, that's going to be very clear uh, in Romans, uh, Romans 8 and Galatians 5. I would say the, the key uh, um, on that, yeah, Romans, I, I can't denigrate Romans 8. So Romans 8 is the key chapter on life in the Spirit, but also Galatians 5, 16 through 25, something like that. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you'll not gratify the deeds of the flesh. For the Spirit wars against the flesh, and the flesh against the Spirit. They're in conflict with each other, so you do not do what you want. So keeping in step with the Spirit, acts of the flesh are this, fruit of the Spirit is that. You know. So that's Galatians 5, life in the Spirit. So that's what it means to serve in the new way of the Spirit. There's lots we could say about that. Anyone want to take a crack at answering that? What does it mean to serve in the new way of the Spirit? Yeah, I think um, there's so many verses I could go to. I think Philippians 2, 12 and 13, which says, So then, dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good purpose. Whoa. He works in you to will. All right. That doesn't mean he's violating your will. I think he's just healing your will. He makes you willing. He makes you willing. All right? When he gives you life and shows you your reality, all right, that will, that will enable you to make the right decision. The clearest example for me of this is Jesus' command <coughs> to Lazarus in uh, 
John 11. You remember what his command was? He goes down to the tomb. He tells them to roll back the stone. The women say there's going to be a bad odor. Jesus said, didn't I tell you that you would see the glory of God? Move the stone. So move the stone. And then he prays, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I pray this for the benefit of those standing here that, you, that they may know that you sent me. That's his prayer. And then he gives Lazarus a very simple and clear command. What was it? Come, come. come forth. <laughs> okay. With the command is supernatural power of life. Right? As he spoke, Lazarus come forth, life entered his dead body. His eardrums vibrated with the command. He understood the verbal command. But he now has an important choice to make. Is he going to obey the command or not? Why are you smiling? <laughs> Wes, this is an important moment for Lazarus, right? He's, he's either going to obey or disobey. What do you think? <laughs> he's going to obey. How many times out of a thousand is he going to obey? All of them. And why? It's like, well, look at the options, all right? It's like, I'm not coming out there, Jesus. All right, first of all, who is Jesus to Lazarus? A good friend, very close friend. What is out there? I would think sunshine, color, whatever. Where is he now? He's in a tomb, maybe the family tomb with other corpses. Now, here's the thing. I don't think this is ridiculous. That actually is the choice we are making every time. It's death or life. And what does Jesus through the Spirit do? He just makes it clear. That is death. This is life. And then we're healed to make inevitably the right choice. See what I'm saying? That's what it, it means that he, he works in us to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That's how the righteous requirements of the law are fully met in us who do not walk by the flesh but by the Spirit. The Spirit educates us illuminates, transforms us, shapes us, and just makes the law appear beautiful. Do you see what I'm saying? Is there anything more beautiful than love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself? I can't tell you how delightful those two commands look to me when I consider that we will all be doing them forever in heaven. How beautiful will that life be in heaven? where you are not needing to be commanded to do them, you just will. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And what will that world be like? What will that society be like? What will that worship be like when you're actually fulfilling those two commandments? How beautiful is that? Those commandments have never seemed more beautiful to me than they do now, and I think they'll seem even more beautiful 10 years from now if I live than they do now. They just appear beautiful to me. They're not repulsive. Jesus' commands are not burdensome. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. You see what I'm saying? That's the beauty of the law. It appears att attractive to me. So in the meantime, then, the Spirit, we serve in the new way of the Spirit. That's what you asked. What does it mean to serve in the new way of the Spirit, not in the old way of the written code? The new way of the Spirit is from within. The Spirit transforms us, educates us, illuminates us, shapes us and molds us, and makes us willing to obey in the pattern of Christ. I think that's what 7-6 means. And when we do, we leave a trail of fruit behind us, a trail of good works that the Lord will never forget. He's going to reward us for them. Can you believe that? You're going to store up treasure in heaven. That's the harvest you get. That's the fruit you get for this new marriage between you and Jesus. You're, you're basically bearing children of good works every day. That's what it is. You're doing the good works God has laid out in advance for you to do. How beautiful is that? Every day, a trail of good works that he said, I will never forget. You'll never lose your reward. If you give even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my messenger, Matthew 10, 42, I tell you the truth, you'll never lose your reward. That's a cup of cold water, for goodness sake. That's a minor little moment. You'll never lose your reward. Well, then that's true of everything, of every good work you ever did. You have a harvest of righteousness trailing behind you as you serve in the new way of the Spirit. How beautiful is that? Conversely, how many good works do the Pharisees, unaided, obeying the law you know, in their own pattern, how many good works do they have to show? How many? Zero. That's, they bore fruit for death. They were bearing fruit for their works of death. 
And why? Because of Romans 10.3, they're seeking to establish their own righteousness and they didn't submit to God's righteousness. All right. Any other questions? That's a, an amazing verse. So I, I, I took that and applied it to, you know, I've often thought, boy, it would have been cool to be there to hear the Sermon on the Mount. But here's the thing. It's better to read the Sermon on the Mount in your Bible with the indwelling spirit than to hear it live from the lips of Jesus without the indwelling spirit. That's what it is better that I go means. It's better for you if I go. It's better to have the indwelling spirit and not the physical presence of Jesus than to have the physical presence of Jesus and not the indwelling spirit. I know we don't tend to think of it, but that's what it is better if I go means. All right, we've got a few minutes left, nine minutes. Let's go on to the next section. Someone read 7 through 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. <coughs> Once I was alive, apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin... Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandments put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. Okay. So Paul here in this section is, as we said, vindicating the law. Why does he need to do that? Well, because it could be argued, and actually was argued in terms of Paul, that he was very negative on the law. That he was very, very down on the law. And I could go through Romans and show moments why you might think that, okay? Therefore, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, this kind of thing. He usually, he's, it, it seems like he's denigrating or, or running the law down. And nothing could be further from the truth. He has the highest esteem of the law, and so therefore, in this section, he wants to vindicate the law and lift it up, all right? I think it really starts um, back in 5... Uh, 20. Someone read 520 if you would. Romans 520. 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Okay. So what does he say about the law there in verse 20? 520. It came in. Actually, the Greek is it was brought in alongside. So it's like some add on. It's like. I think most law-abiding Jews or the scribes that spent their whole lives copying would be very offended by that kind of insinuation. The law was added on and brought in alongside. Um, and so he's got to address that, that he's not running the law down. He's not denigrating it. All right? So in the end, what, how does he describe the law in, the, in this section here? What does he say about it in the end? holy, righteous, and good. That's pretty strong vindication of the law. Now, I already mentioned some Old Testament scriptures that very much celebrate the beauty of the law. Do you know what they are? Some of them, it's actually pretty easy to remember. Psalm 19 and 119. That's why it's easy to remember. You can always remember that. What does he say about the law? The law, um, you know, the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes, are radiant, and all that, that's, it's just perfect. That's Psalm 19. Psalm 19 celebrates, in just a few verses, the beauty and perfection and glory of the law. Psalm 119 doesn't do it in three verses. It does it in 176, letter by letter. And you, you get the sense of just the beauty and the perfection of the law of God, every letter from Psalm 119. So what Paul's saying here is he's like, no, 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 there's nothing wrong with the law. It couldn't have been written better. It couldn't have been done better. It was doing exactly what it was meant to do. So he begins then by asking the question, what then shall we say? Is the law sin? I mean, think about that. 
I mean, why does he say that? And what does it show you? Is the law sin? How has he been presenting the law in reference to us? In verse 1 through 6, what is he saying there? It stirs up the sin in us. Okay. seems to stir up the sin. Yes. It's authoritative over us, right? Um, because of the husband analogy, you know. Uh, the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives. Uh, I said the law is, is going to tell you what a righteous life is and the penalty for not keeping it. And what is the penalty for not keeping that righteousness? Death. So the law defines the perfect life. It analyzes your life to see if it was perfect. And then it condemns you to death if you didn't keep it. And then it kills you. That's what the law does. So then, do you see then why 7-7 would, would seem like it might pop in your mind? Is the law sin? Is the law like demonic? Is the law evil? It seems like it's my enemy. Like it's, it's my vicious foe. It's like that, so that's why he wrote, writes it that way. Is the law sin? That you may think of it that way. No, it isn't. The law is not sin. He actually says the same thing he always says. May it never be. Absolutely not. Certainly not. Then he says, actually, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. So what is the significant, uh, significance of that statement? I wouldn't have known what sin was apart from the law. It is an enlightening standard. Okay. So is knowing... Go ahead, Stephanie. Is like Adam and Eve in the garden when they sin and that they got the knowledge of good and evil? Yeah, I mean, was there any evil in Adam and Eve before he ate that fruit? In Adam, before he, was there any answer? No, he was created good. All right, but once he transgressed, etc. So he's, he's, and then he adds the law. The law came in alongside what you just read, 520, to draw the sin out and make it bigger, to make it, to expand it. So, yeah, sin wouldn't exist. If, if God said, in the Garden of Eden. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Full stop. <laughs> what then? No sin. There's no boundaries. There's no barriers. There's no transgression possible. But the problem with that is God wanted us to be put in our place to say there are boundaries to you. You are not God. You are not free to do whatever you want. You have to do what I say. And you have to not do what I prohibit. So you have to stay within the lines and the boundaries. And so that's putting in our, us in our place. And Adam and Eve, they didn't stay in their, in their place. So I would not have known what sin was except through law. Now let's go to our present situation. All right, we're not talking Adam and Eve, now the Garden of Eden. We're talking evangelism. We've got a, a whole c community of people. We've got the triangle region of people to reach. What is the significance of the statement, I would not have known what sin was except through the law? How does that fit into our mission? And you use this image in other settings, but I think it might apply here as well. The idea of an oncologist using a particular tool to detect a certain cancer and using that to reveal something that was unknown before, ultimately so it can be treated. The law may be functioning in that way where you can say, apart from it, I didn't realize that this was as bad as it is, but now I know because of the law. Okay. Absolutely. And go to Luke 5, where Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. How many of the people that we're trying to reach here are, based on that verse, spiritually sick? All of them. How many of them know that they're sick? I don't know. But they don't know like they should. They don't know like they should. What's that? Some don't know it at all. What then will tell them that they are so sick they need Jesus to heal them? The law alone. They will not know what sin is apart from the law. That's why I would say as evangelists, I would commend that you memorize the, uh, a summary of the Ten Commandments. You don't have to get all the verbi verbiage of Exodus uh, 20, but a summary. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any idols or worship any idols. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. 
All right, honor, uh, you shall not murder, or you honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, and you shall not covet. It's not that hard. And then the two great commandments, which summarize all of it, which I've already quoted several times tonight, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. And I would add, Jesus' um, legal commentary on two of the commandments, you shall not murder, but I say to you that if you're even angry, you're in danger of the fire of hell. And you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, lustfully, you're in danger of the fire of hell. I say that whole thing will, get, will do the job. It'll get everyone you talk to to admit that they're sinners, if they understand. And you know that it's happened when they say, no one's perfect. Well, you're on the right track. That's true. That's why we need Jesus. Yeah. So, all right, let's stop there. We'll pick it up next time. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.